You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Dan Imhoff is a researcher, author, and independent publisher who has concentrated for over 20 years on issues related to farming, the environment, and design. He's the author of numerous articles, essays, and books, including Farming with the Wild, Enhancing Biodiversity on Farms and Ranches, and Building with Vision, Optimizing and Finding Alternatives to Wood. Dan is a public speaker who lectures and conducts workshops on a variety of topics, from food and farming to environmental design and conservation. He's appeared on hundreds of national and regional radio and television programs, and has testified before Congress, spoken at numerous conferences, corporate and government offices, and college campuses. Dan is the president and a co-founder of Wild Farm Alliance, a 10-year-old national organization that works to promote agriculture systems that support and accommodate wild nature. He lives on a small homestead farm in Northern California, and today I speak with Dan about what it means to make farming more creaturely through rewilding practices and better farming policy. We start with what farming with the wild means to him. Farming with the wild is just still, to me, this amazing aspirational goal for agriculture. Um, I always try to start my talks. I do a lot of talks about large animal agriculture, about farming with the wild, about, you know, food policy and farm policy. I always try to start those talks with a picture of uh, cave paintings from Lascaux, which shows all the wild animals Uh, the the creaturely universe of our pre-human societies um, out of which most of our domesticated animals came from. And you think about that gatherer-hunter world and, and the creatures in their minds that allowed them to create these extraordinary paintings so long ago with such really truly limited technologies and if you fast forward today to today and you know you look at our agricultural landscapes that are just so devoid of creatureliness and of that beauty you know and and that inspiration that that would um inspire someone to you know make art instead we have these moonscapes and these factories and we've We've gone so far away from the world in which our agriculture came out of. And I think our only hope, truly, because agriculture is one of our biggest forces that is driving uh, the heating of the climate and extinction of so many species, our only hope is to make it more wild again and to make our landscapes more creaturely and, and to restore the flow of, um, you know, all kinds of different biological forces across our farming landscapes. And, and we're just so far away from it. And um, it is truly where we need to go. Our farmers need to become conservationists and our conservationists 
have to help our agriculturalists uh, restore and rewild these these huge parts of the continent and and the world, uh, which are now dominated by um, you know industrial cropping systems. How are we doing right now? How has the interest picked up over the years? I think it's a real struggle. Um, I, I don't know how you know the rewilding institute might. Uh, answer how we're doing. You know, I, I think that farmers need to survive economically first of all before they can even consider whatever land use they're they're you know practicing. You know, our NRCS, our Natural Resources Conservation Service, um, that is uh, part of our government arm to really help uh, farmers become conservationists and support them. I think, you know, it struggles. It struggles to um, have enough money to do meaningful work. And it struggles to make the best practices the, the most practiced. You know, I, I think when we look at farming, um, you would hope we have, we have all this money that goes out to farmers. This year, it's up to $30 billion right now um, just to support farmers. And you would hope that what it would do would be to, you know, support the best and motivate the rest. But instead, really, we we support the worst practices and the guys who are doing the best and, and the true stewards of the land, they kind of have to really support their efforts themselves to a large extent. So, you know, I'm afraid that I'm not sanguine about where we are. I don't hear hardly anything in the mainstream about, you know, look, it, agriculture is the problem and agriculture could be the solution. We have to, you know, we have these suite of solutions. We have to get going. We have to, you know, really address um, a lot of these problems out there. I, I don't hear that. So it's not mainstreamed. It's, it's, it's very marginal. The, the farming with the wild air, um, practices, and I think it's it's mainly you know done by individuals uh, who care about the place where they live, and they care so much about the place that they live that they're very in tune with it, and they want it to be natural because there's so many things that come from a natural landscape, um, and and so you know I, I think it's it's even less marginal than organic agriculture. With you guys talking about this stuff, it's very, very exciting to think about what's possible. But I'm, I'm afraid that it's a real policy-focused issue in, in the sense that there's not a lot to hold on to for the public. It's not a sexy headline. Um, it doesn't have like a big grizzly bear face attached to it, or it could. I mean, very smart marketing would make that so, uh, or something like that, you know. It's, but it's a tough issue, I think, because people don't know a lot about where their food comes from to this day. They've heard some horror stories if they've read any headlines that are like, look at all the pesticide use, look at all of this. Um, but that's as far as I've seen it go, too. I, I really don't see articles that delve into it any deeper than pesticides and and the bad practices um, and generally it seems as though the public is just letting it slide there what are your thoughts about outside of policy outside of working on issues in the farm bill um, the subsidies and all of those things and the practices 
how do we get people excited about this? What have been maybe um, some successes that your organization has had in the past to to get a really good hearty response to what you're fighting for? Well, you really you really can't um, get away from policy, and at some point, you know, everything kind of goes back to it. Yeah. Um, what are some of the successes that we've had? I, I mean. I would say that our organization is way more of a um, information gathering and and clearing house and you know trying to share best practices that have been studied across numerous applications rather than you know having campaigns to enroll you know so many thousands or millions of acres in some kind of special practice why Why is this so hard to capture people's imaginations? I've been reading this really cool publication from England. I was in England over the spring and I was doing some research on farming with the wild over in England because there is a really strong rewilding movement going on across Britain. There's this magazine called The Land and uh, one of the production editors wrote this incredible piece just about wildness and, 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 and how where agriculture came from. And he came uh, up with this idea of neoteny. Neoteny is this biological term where after, you know, when, when an animal comes out of the wild, after a few generations of reproduction, it starts to become a lot more like an infant. So a lot more submissive without the kind of ferocious, wild, self-defending um, properties that the animal has in the wild. And I would say maybe that's a big part of our problem as a species, as humans in living in industrial society, that, you know, we're, we're in this world that's really increasingly detached from nature. And we're reverting to children, you know, like child tendencies that that really don't have this this wildness in our spirit. That's just my conjecture. I think what's really truly difficult is when you're talking about farming with the wild, you're not talking about a farm that's wild, you know, like so one one farm that has lots of bird habitat and has a free flowing stream and you know, places, corridors so that uh, maybe predators can even um, pass through. That, that won't do in a, in a totally degraded landscape. You're talking about, you know, whole watersheds and whole regions where people are working together to protect the flow of biodiversity and all the cycles that are dependent upon that. And so, you know, it, it's really regionally dependent. And it's hard, you know, and, and, and so when we were doing that early work long ago in like the late 1990s, going all over the country, looking for these areas where conservationists and agricultural practitioners were coming together to solve problems across pretty large landscapes, they were few and far between. Um, we could have done a whole book just on California, but that really wasn't you know what we were shooting for so it took a number of years and and we did find areas all over the country where you know there is a real landscape level approach through farmlands to 
protect uh, and sometimes restore uh, habitat and species. But you know, the challenge is that it has to be big and it has to be across landscapes. Now, having said that, I've been doing uh, a lot of thinking. Um, there are these concepts of land sparing and land sharing. A kind of, let, let's say you have an area like the Midwest. It's basically an ecological sacrifice zone. It's a corn basket. It's a soybean basket. And we've pretty much sacrificed huge millions and millions of acres across our Midwest to produce food. And that's argu arguable if we're really producing food and not feed and fuel. At any rate, we have this area. It's already designated and being used for conventional agriculture. That actually frees up potentially other areas to be, to be restored and to be uh, somewhat wild or, or you know, pasture woodlot based. So we have these areas of industrial agriculture that actually give us the opportunities in other areas around the world to not practice agriculture in areas that I absolutely should not be, you know, plowed and in production. And there's a lot of them. In the reading that I've been doing, a lot of reading, um, it seems like almost everyone is, is advocating that we keep the tropical forest vertical and, and not deforested and not converted for more um, agriculture, which is going to be, um, I think, as the planet warms up, increasingly, increasingly difficult because yields go down uh, as temperatures rise and, and it's going to make agriculture especially difficult in the hottest areas. So what if we were to say, okay, we're gonna do our best in our soybean producing areas. And because we have a huge, huge surplus of soybeans, we're overproducing them, maybe we could somehow find an imaginative way to ship our soybeans to Brazil in return for them not cutting their forest down. But what they wanna do is convert their forest to soybean production or, or cattle production. And um, it, it's just a, you know, it's a never ending dead end street. And I think that we have to really begin to look at our landscapes much, much more imaginatively and make use of what we have. And then really also imaginatively restore what shouldn't be in, in production. Well, I was just gonna say in building this giant machine, uh, this industrial, agricultural complex the only way that it works is if everything gets out of the way and everything is sterile and and people began to look more at the landscape on spreadsheets than they did on the ground and i like when you talked about you know we have this sacrifice zone where where i live <laughs> i'm very aware of how much has been sacrificed here because we have to go really far out of our way to find um the things that we like to do, hiking and rivers and things like that, that aren't um, and usually are bordered by agriculture. So you might be fantasizing you're floating down the Chama River on the Whitewater River here in Indiana near Brookville, uh, only until one side or the other of the river, the trees disappear and corn appears right up to the edge of the river. And there goes the fantasy. Um, 
And it's just things like that. I think we've mechanized this and spreadsheeted it and, and turned everything into data so much that I, it, it really is intimidating to me um, of how we even begin to chip away at that kind of thing. And the guys who really cared about the land before have since sold to a big agribusiness, a corporation in many cases. So the people who knew what was going on on the ground who would be instrumental in helping with that uh, restoration or at least uh, more wild farming practices away from the destructive practices, those guys are gone. And people who own the corporations who've never lived in these places are just saying, hey, there's more room over here. <laughs> let's, let's, let's plant over here too. It, it's a very big problem. But I like that, um, that you're thinking of solutions of how to deal with surpluses and how to be creative with all of this. And um, maybe not just taking a little bit of the pressure off people like me who hear these things for what are we going to do with this big industry? And then they would just keep saying, we've got to feed people. That's their big line. And it's very, it's a, it's a juggernaut <laughs> to try to um, say anything against that because immediately they are couching it in terms of taking food out of people's mouths, even though a lot of it goes to feed, like you said. And into our fuel tanks in and, the most inefficient way. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, no, there, there's, it's amazing. Um, a lot of this problem, I mean, there were 6 million family farms in the 1930s, right? You know, at the time of the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. And now there's about 2 million. So there's, and, and of those 2 million that are actually, you know, counted as farmers, about 300,000 are really actively engaged in the big um, subsidized conventional agriculture. Um, and without people on the land that really care, you know, um, you, you, it's just very hard to have some kind of a cultural movement. And, it, and, and really, a lot of the so-called family farmers that are still producing are, are barely hanging on. They hang on because of subsidies. And the subsidies kind of just flow through them uh, because it is such a capitalized system. And uh, to me, there, there, there's been this movement as somebody who's studied the subsidy program for many, many years now. It's, it's basically a system of permanent disaster assistance. So mm -hmm. we, we set up these farms and um, they're based on a certain amount of production and historical production and we've allowed for the expansion into areas that have never been and never should have been plowed up to yeah. the tune of millions and millions of acres that every year are going to fail there's going to be you know crop failure there's going to be drought there's going to be flood one out of every two years they're not even going to get a crop and still we pay the farmers to keep practicing this insanely um, disastrous form of agriculture where we could just say, okay, let's be honest. This is not a fair market. You guys work for Uncle Sam. Therefore, you work for us, the taxpayers. Therefore, we, the taxpayers, should actually get something for that. What we need is to have agriculture start to have permanent roots in the ground. 
and stop this endless fight of overproduction and start to have permanent roots in the ground. I mean, imagine if we took 100 million acres out of agriculture, and I'm just throwing that number out, out there, but, but imagine the, all the Dust Bowl states, all the Great Plains states that were plowed up and never ever should have been plowed up and really, really are marginally productive agriculture states. And we started planting trees. In 100 million acres, if we went to permanent ground cover and we just had 10 trees per acre, on 100 million acres, we would have a billion trees, right? We could, we could actually really transform the landscape. We're paying these farmers anyway for their land use. Why not decouple those payments from really destructive agriculture, this cycle of degradation, and put it into some kind of cycle of restoration? But, you know, it, it, it's going to take minds, imagination, and also landowners really willing to admit that, you know what, I never make money. This, I'm just beating my head against the wall. This is, you know, this doesn't want to be farmland. It wants to be prairie. It wants to be, you know, a kind of a mixed pasture woodland. It wants to have some animals on it, you know, maybe buffalo. Uh, there, there's just so many things that we could potentially do. And so I can never get too far away from the policy just because yeah. the, the policy drives everything. People farm the system. They don't farm the way the farm might fit the land. They right now are farming way, way too many sub soybeans because Trump's policies are, are paying the soy farmer, soybean farmers, because of, you know, his tariff war. And so, so let, we, we, we absolutely need to get away from the cycles of degradation and look at agriculture as this conservation stewardship opportunity. There, there probably is room for different crops as well. We are either soybeans or corn here in Indiana. And I feel like something's wrong when I'm driving, say, to our river that we want to, you know, you're going to pass through a lot of farmland. And what I noticed this year is because there were so many days that they couldn't plant because of rain, because we had a massive, massive amount of rain this year, the crops look weird. Uh, they, they got their corn in, in some places, and I noticed those were higher and drier places where they were, you know, you start to look at the landscape and and figure out how were they able to do that because it was knee high by 4th of July. <laughs> and I, I heard that they were having a really hard time just getting out into the field. So in those places, yeah. they were able to figure it out. And in other places, there's this really weird soybean with a lot of volunteer corn from the last year. But yeah, it, just think of how much soil moved around in those rains if it was uncovered, you know? Yeah. So, well, it looks like a, a like half manicured on purpose soybean crop, but I've never seen so many volunteer corn stalks in, in that. And growing up in Indiana, I know what that field ought to look like, what it typically has looked like when it was its monoculture soybean thing. And I, and with what you said with subsidies, it makes me think that, you know, there's a little bit of a desperation to just get something in the ground so that somebody might be able to qualify for some disaster program, but they have to, they have to have something in the ground in order to do that. And it looked, hasty. It looked 
thrown out there and it looked guided by something other than certainly nature, but guided by, you know, something other than common sense in a way. Like it's really a response to a program that you want to desperately qualify for (laughs) instead of what maybe should have been done on that land. Like in the last farm bill, hemp is okay to grow now, as far as I understand. And the way people are talking about what you get per acre of corn or soy versus what is the potential, though you would have to work with different machinery and it would be change and all of those things considered, you could make a hell of a lot more with hemp which is a easier crop on the land. It doesn't require all of these, you know, pesticides and everything else. Um, there could be a cover crop uh, compliance. I, I mean, if, you, if you're getting subsidies, then you have to have a cover crop program. That means during the winter months, you know, there has to be something green uh, with roots on the soil at all times. And then, you know, when, when you knock down that cover crop, you can plant into it and you're building soil organic matter. You're protecting the soil from those catastrophic flood events that you're talking about. You're taking some of the pressure off of having to just put, you know, so much synthetic fertilizer into the soil because those cover crops pull nitrogen out of the atmosphere and store it in the roots of the soil deep down. And, and these kinds of best practices, they, and they really are best practices that can save a landowner money uh, in the long run and also not sacrifice crops and, and, and output. These are kind of baby steps. We're really just talking about, you know, sound agriculture, not really, yeah. you know, rewilding the landscape. But these kinds of things have to turn for us to get toward these, you know, bigger issues. Now, I mean, one thing that all farming regions have are waterways, and waterways are necessary for about 80% of all the species that are going through any kind of a landscape. And so simply addressing how we maintain our, our banks along canals and streams and ditches and rivers, um, those should be super, super high priority, um, healthy corridors, rewilded, restored areas um, to filter water, to pull carbon into the ground, to keep any kind of pollutants or soil that's washing off the fields from getting into the waterways. I mean, there's like millions and millions of miles of canals and streams and waterways that we could really put a lot of attention to right away. And all you have to do is ask the people in the city of Des Moines, whose water is horribly de- uh, degraded up from upstream uh, agriculture, especially animal agriculture in Iowa. And um, they spend you know, hundreds of millions of dollars trying to clean it up, and they still have a huge nitrate problem. Um, and that's because you know, what's coming off of those farms is, is like just a whole toxic mess that go into these tile drained fields that go into the waterways and they end up in the in the city water in in Des Moines and they can't get it out and and so you know there's a lot of cleanup that we could do and I think you could use some restoration techniques actually to to help that out and the economics really show that you know if you clean the water upstream um, you you save 
millions and millions of dollars downstream. Policy-wise, then, let's get back, because you said it always comes back to policy, and here we are. It didn't take us any time at all uh, to go back, but I, I want a friend. Who is our friend? Who, who's introducing bills that have this sort of a rewilding ethic, although they wouldn't use that word, but for buffers around our riparian areas, for these simpler first steps that you're talking about, it just seems like we should have a champion or five or 10 in Congress. If I could, if I could wave a wand and, and I could put somebody in charge of the Department of Agriculture, I think I would go for John Tester, Senator from Montana. He's a farmer. He's an organic farmer. He's a guy who like lost his couple fingers as a kid because he was working on his farm at home, his family farm. He's in Montana. They have a lot of, you know, resource issues there. They have a lot of animals that they're trying to protect. And um, they come from a, you know, they they come from a, a complicated state of fishers and hunters and recreators. And, you know, he's managed to, I think, uh, walk a good line. So, you know, you need someone who, A, understands agriculture and B, understands conservation. So he'd probably be my top, top choice for Secretary of Agriculture. Now, you know, there's, there's also other committees. There are natural resource committees. There, there are other things that could also empower conservation across our landscapes that that they don't all have to go through the USDA and the Department of Ag, but they, they do have a lot of money. So you, you have to just keep fighting for it. We do have, uh, we're in a holding pattern. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, uh, they're actually trying to dismantle the USDA as we speak. Right. Brilliant. Brilliant. And everything else. And delisting. You know, and that might be a good idea. I'm not sure. You know, I just don't know the plan. I just, I, I you know, I'm not, I'm still waiting to hear, I, I truly want to hear from the farmers themselves. You know, there's, there's a North Dakota farmer named Gabe, Gabe Brown that people really, really admire a lot of his production techniques and kind of, uh, he does a lot of uh, creative cover cropping. He's a smart family farmer making his living in an area of the country, which is, I would say, weather challenged. But I think he does have a conservation ethic. And you want, you want people like that. You want the farmers to take the lead. Ask, you know, please help us. We want to do the right thing. We realize that what we're doing doesn't work. It's taking all these public dollars that should be, you know, that there, there should be something that comes of it. And um, we want to get back to this creaturely world. Um, and, and you can see the work in the Wild Farm Alliance, you know, they're doing a lot of work with birds. And I think, unless you're a sunflower farmer, I know birds can be a pest for, for certain agricultural uh, producers, but in a lot of cases, you know, let's just say uh, row crops, and um, orchard crops, birds can just be really beneficial. And they can also kind of be the gateway drug to really getting hooked on better, better farming techniques. Once you, once you have those songs, those, those songs in your head, those birds singing, and you see those beautiful colors and what's happening on your farm and it's coming alive, then you realize, wow, there's, there's many, many deeper layers to go. And the challenge with farming 
is that it's just one of these things that you know it's going it, it takes a lifetime to learn and every season is a is a learning experience and you know that that's that's the same with really trying to be a true conservation a conservation based farmer you know it's like it it's it takes it takes a lifetime and um our time is running short so somehow we need leaders to step up and say I'm for the wild. And if, you know, ranching means killing all the wolves, then, then I'm out, you know, that's not worth it. That's, that's not why we humans are here. We're here to coexist. And in, and in many ways, you know, co coexisting with domesticated animals is even a little bit more challenging and maybe fulfilling than, than just being a hunter, you know, and, 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 and existing with wild animals because, you can't make animals do what they don't want to do, you know, they, they, and so you have to work with them. And um, that's a real contract. And, and it's a, it's a deep relationship. And, and that's, that's what rewilding your landscape is about. It's about having a relationship with the land rather than, you know, the, the future, like it's amazing the future of farming that, that I read about sometimes, like it's all going to be done by, you know, satellite guided tractors and drones that apply fertilizer right where it's needed. And we're going to raise, you know, food in the cities in these skyscrapers, you know, and, and we're going to have meat in to, into, you know, Petri dishes. And there's not going to be any more nature in food. We're all, it's all going to be fine. You know, we're going to be eating like astronauts. Well, my organizer's brain cannot turn off ever. So I've picked out a couple of clues in what you've said. One is we need farmers to take the lead. And that made me go back to those numbers that you, you quoted earlier, about 6 million family farms around the Great Depression, down to 2 million family farms today, but only 300,000 or so are actively working their farms on the ground and really know the space. So I th well, they're, they're the ones that are getting, you know, that like count in terms of subsidies. Okay. They're growing, they're growing the commodity crops. Yeah. Okay. It seems like possibly in order to nudge the farmers to take the lead, we're looking at that group of 300,000 or so, and maybe it can be whittled down to a hundred thousand uh, that are the easiest to go after in terms of their mindset toward the land. Um, not sure. But it feels to me like there would be a group out there that was organizing just for those types of farmers to give them education pieces, um, training, and, and offer them all kinds of things to help them take care of their riparian areas in a way that's more along the lines of rewilding and, um, and protecting downstream water quality that way as well. And I assume that there's somebody out there doing that because it seems like an easy target and it seems based on your very good point that farmers need to take the lead, Well, we have to give those farmers tools or the impetus or the possibility that there's hope to do it another way, which is what Joanne was talking about. There are a lot of farmers out there who would really be amenable to doing it. And, and when you say they, they are the guys who want to be in a more creaturely harmonious existence with the land, I have to believe that some part of that 300,000 would be easy pickings to begin this groundswell of support 
all the way up to the top of the policy, like in deciding or lobbying for who we want for Secretary of Agriculture and new guidelines, um, addendums to uh, business as usual, uh, policy changes. If farmers were to take the lead, are they getting, are, are any segment of the farming, family farmers getting the support that they need to feel like there's a chance in hell that they could change anything? Uh, the, the group that I was thinking about is called the Practical Farmers of Iowa. And I, I definitely refer people to them because I, I think that they've kind of taken Aldo Leopold, to, you know, to task. It's like, not to task, but they've, they've really taken in his idea that the farmer has to be a conservationist. And they want really only support for conservation. There, there, there are definitely some groups that could take the lead and be energized and, and absolutely are leading in their own way. It's just, I have to say the Farm Bureau, you know, they're, they're, it's kind of like the NRA, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of really um, beholden to these huge groups that make really bad policies. So in the absence of leadership, then, you know, you, you would hope that, that farmers will take the lead themselves. And I mean, they have to know, they have to know after the floods that you guys experienced this spring, that the rains that never stopped, that we're in this really, really uncertain new world and that we have to change, you know, we have to change. What about, what about the demand side then? So those are the obstacles on on that side, what about the demand side and all? You know, you could have buyers that that said, "We're not going to buy your, you know, your whatever unless you have a cover crop uh, program." And and then you know, you go towards co-ops that have um, that are you know selling a certain whatever wheat or corn or vegetables, any kind of crops, and you know they they have that protocol within their co-op. And then, you know, the buyers could, could definitely drive these things. It's just how, how many of them are really properly educated on the problems and, and you know, the solutions. Well, I'm very proud, <laughs> sadly, uh, that we have um, finally a farmer's market in my town that it, no one's allowed to be there unless they're an organic farmer and have some sort of proof which really doesn't mean a lot. Um, Joanne also schooled me a little bit more on what that really means. And it doesn't, in some cases, mean an awful lot. It doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means. And so everybody gets really excited up to that point. It's like, wow, we've really done a thing here. And we have, in a way. But there's so much, it took so much time to get people to understand the importance of that issue of organic and then they think they understand what it is when they don't understand everything that goes with that. They'd be quite surprised with what does go with organic. And it's yeah. also not even close to what we're talking about here today. Um, what I see as a problem is a severe lack of education on the consumer side. When you said, I'm not buying anything unless there's a cover crop, I'm trying to picture those words coming out of the average person who goes to this farmer's market on Saturday coming out of their mouths. I just, I see a lot of education probably. You know, I mean, it, it, it could, you could see that it could become a campaign and you could get buyers out on the ground and 
you know, really understanding, oh, wow, this is how Gabe Brown does it. You know, this is how most people do it. And here's here's these really good results, right? There's carbon being restored. There's even some nesting bird habitat. There's per total protection uh, against erosion during the winter months and the rainy months, especially on any kind of steep field. Any any sediment is going to be filtered before it gets into the creek. Ah, I understand that's how that works. It, you know, it's it's doing so many different things just with a simple cover crop. It's also going to eliminate the need for so many fertilizers that could completely eliminate them, the need for synthetic fertilizers. Um, and then they see, oh, here's this guy, you know, when the rains come, all the soil goes down that, you know, just washes away, gone forever, not to mention all the, all the chemicals that are going into this, this operation. It's night and day. To me, it's crazy. I've been studying this stuff for 30 years, you know, I keep hearing the same thing. People don't know about where their food comes from. And it, it seems it seems insane. Not for lack of trying, right? On the part of authors like you, educators. There's that new movie, and... The Biggest Little Farm. It has some flaws, but, but I think it's a, it's a really good way to showcase that a farm can be creaturely. You can work with nature. Like that's the farmer's job, you know? To kind of do this dance and it's a coexistence thing it's not a a man just completely dominating wiping out everything and turning uh you know the farm into a factory there's a great new book that i just read um and i visited their their farm in england o over the springtime it's called wilding and it's about this british couple um they had a very 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 large estate in southern england and they basically realized that it made no sense to do the agriculture that they were trying. They, they were actually, you know, really successful in many regards in terms of how much per acre they could get on their arable lands. They won prizes for their milk and their cheese and their ice cream and things like that. They were, they, you know, they had this really, really nationally acclaimed uh, livestock program, but they made no money. And they were, they were just constantly having to just put more into a system that it wasn't suited for. And so they just said, we're, we're going back to the days of Robin Hood. We're just letting this thing, this, this whole 6,000 acres go wild and um, revert to, you know, kind of a, a shrubby pasture woodland. And they've, they've gone deep. They've gone deep trying to get like horses that are as old as they can get to the ancient European wild horses and biggest longhorn cattle as close as they can get to the wild auric, which was the original bovine creature. Um, they want to reintroduce beavers. They've reintroduced cranes. Um, they've seen all these species come back to their land. Their neighbors were aghast at mm -hmm. what these people were doing in southern England, but but 20 years now into this experiment, they're they're you know they're they're getting better. They're, they're on a voyage. They're on this journey, and it is a it's not really a farm so much anymore. It's a more of a rewilding enterprise. Okay, so here's my plan, and I'm famous for coming up with plans that have already been made, and I hope this is a case for that too. <laughs> I hope somebody's already doing this, but I get very confused and 
upset when we get into the policy stuff because of things like the farm bureaus, like the NRA and the, everything is so, ugh. and I can only yeah. tolerate that for so long before I start looking for solutions elsewhere. And so I brought up the consumer side and, and organic markets and farmers markets. And I'm now picturing an organization that's dedicated to putting somebody at every single farmer's market across the country that has information, a movie list, a book list, like you just gave us Biggest Little Farm, Wilding. You know, there's an, there's entertainment here. I mean, I would love to pick up a little movie list. We're always trying to find new things to watch with the family for family movie night. I would love to go to a farmer's market and have a little list of here's those really good shows. And that starts to engender this whole attitude of let's think more completely about where our food comes from and realize at first that we're not. We're only, we're like, oh, everything's cool because it's organic, whatever that means. It's, you know, and people just go back to their daily lives that are complicated and they don't want to think too much, but we can entertain them and we can educate them and sit right next to the farmers while also being able to talk to the farmers. I mean, <laughs> there'd be farmers there who haven't heard of Wilding. They haven't done, you know, watch Biggest Little Farm. They haven't all the other resources. I just picture an organization dedicated to putting a person at every single farmer's market and starting there. And it wouldn't be that weird little tabling situation where I don't want to think about that. That's politics. What are you doing here? You must be one of those hippie types. It wouldn't have that feel at all. It would just be, wow, this looks really cool. Thank you. I, I am with you 100% in, in terms of uh, I think that our farmer's markets, of which there are many, many thousands of them, across the country, they, they really are our meeting places and they really should be our, our places where we can get a lot of information across and sometimes it can even be political. I mean, you could also come up with a number of questions that people might ask to farmers about their farm, you know, like, hey, have you seen any cool birds on your farm these days? Or, you know, what is, what is the neatest interaction with nature that you have on your farm and just you know allow them to tell some stories and allow them to own their stewardship you know again i i i want to say it you want the farmers to come out and you want them to because they're the ones taking all the risk and um you know you you want them to be supported in a in a very powerful way you know you can you could simply have a cool postcard that the farmer's market manager could download, you know? Yeah. And there are these lists of, of farmer's markets managers, I think maybe even across the country. I, I, I think you're on to something very much. It's really one of the places that we have receptive, open minds and, and people who are there for the right reasons, you know? And you just have to give them a few more reasons. Now we need leaders. Now we need a vision. And the vision is this beautiful dream that our farming has to become more wild. It has to accommodate a lot of natural cycles. Um, and it has to kind of be our, our, the, you know, our first offense uh, from, from the climate catastrophe that we're facing. We need to get a billion trees in the ground. We need to have permanent um, cover on our on our land when it's not being uh, farmed and we have a lot of mechanisms mechanisms to do that 
wild animals, the wild plants, the native flora and fauna as part of the production, the output, the stewardship of a farm, of a healthy farm. And a farm isn't healthy if it doesn't have any diversity at all. It is just a sacrifice zone. And if we're going to have a sacrifice zone, then maybe we can use that as an excuse to have biodiversity elsewhere and a much, much healthier landscape elsewhere. Dan, thank you so much for your time today. I know people are going to get a lot out of this episode and we look forward to everything that's coming from your camp here in the near and and long term. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.